Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Welcome, listeners, to this week's episode of FF+. Plus. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and best friend, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Tonight, we have reviews of movies new, movies old, movies fictional, movies not fictional, movies really, really old, kind of, in a sense. Do we call 20 years really, really old? No, probably mm. not. Classic. We call them classic. They're not old. They're classics. Ooh, what am I? What are we? Forty years old now. What would we call ourselves? If we mm, seasoned. 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 We're seasoned. So, what would a seasoned movie be? A forty-year-old movie would be seasoned. Uh, let's see. Like yeah, it'd be a classic. Okay. Well, we can call ourselves classic if you want. Seasoned, maybe fifty years. Yeah. That okay. Sounds better. Although so seasoned, in... seasoned makes me feel like we're maybe like on Lord of the Flies and somebody's gonna eat us. Well, you know. Or a vampire could... movie. <laughs> How do you even go there? That's just crazy. I don't know. I'm losing listeners before we even get to the meat of the conversation. <laughs> but for real listeners, we do want to ask a favor of you today before we get into the reviews. If you're a longtime listener of the show, this is for you. If you're a new listener, we totally don't expect you to do this. If you want to, that's great. But really, this is targeted at those folks who've been listening to the show and enjoying it for some time, whether that's Two or three episodes are almost 200. We have an opportunity to be represented on Rotten Tomatoes. They've recently opened up their platform to podcasters, and even more recently than that, they have changed one of the most difficult-to-obtain criteria. It used to be that you had to have 200 written reviews on iTunes, and that's a real problem for pretty much any podcast that isn't run by a celebrity. Uh, reviewing on iTunes, we know that takes your time and it's a pain in the butt. Probably most of you even, I don't know, half of you, whatever, a lot of you don't even use Apple devices. And so you may not even have iTunes available. So what they did is they changed it and now it's only 200 ratings of four star and above. And we are somewhere in the 120-ish range at this point. And we would love to see our podcast hit 200. We know that there's at least 200 listeners out there probably more. And we would love for you to just pop on to iTunes, to the Feel and Film page, and just click the stars, four or five, hit submit, and you're done. That's really all you've got to do. If you want to leave some words of encouragement or a review for others to read so that they might find the podcast and, and become you know excited about checking it out, that's even better. But those ratings right now is all we need. We meet all of the other criteria that they're asking for, and we just think that it would be really cool to have our voice and our way of looking at movies from the emotional perspective represented on a site like Rotten Tomatoes. So we need your help and that's our pitch. So we hope that you will do that for us. Thank you in advance. If you do, if you don't, no hard feelings. And Patrick, with that being said, I say let's get into these reviews because we've got a lot to get through. Let's do it. All right. Well, we're going to start off with the movie that is releasing in theaters this week nationwide. And that is Angel Has Fallen. 
The synopsis of this third film in the dot 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 has fallen trilogy. I don't know what we would call it, but I like dot 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 has fallen. Or the uh, falling falling trilogy. The fallen, you know, that probably works better. But I like mine. Dot dot dot. The ellipsis. <laughs> the ellipsis, the ellipsis has fallen trilogy. <laughs> that's got to be number four. Ellipsis okay. has fallen. Okay. Anyway, okay. that's that's all about like someone who is gets assassinated for having bad grammar, which I would probably. Empathize. You'd be writing that one. You would write or direct that. I would be all over that. So, <laughs> the plot of this one is that Secret Service agent Mike Manning, played by the wonderful Gerard Butler is framed for the attempted assassination of the president played by Morgan Freeman and must evade his own agency, secret service and the FBI as he tries to uncover the real threat. Now, let me start by asking you, Patrick, have you seen Olympus has fallen and or London has fallen the first two movies? I have seen Olympus. I've not seen London. So Olympus has fallen for those of you listening who've not watched it, is essentially Die Hard with Gerard Butler in the White House. I mean, it pretty much beat for beat is Die Hard. That is what is modeled after. It does it very well, though, and it is a lot of fun. I think Gerard Butler is a phenomenal actor, and I think he is just tailor-made for these kind of kind of B-movie-ish, you know, type action films i enjoy them pretty much always no matter what it's a a really rare occurrence when i don't like something he's in so i loved olympus is fallen i thought it was a lot of fun it has plenty of problems um just aaron eckhart playing the president is not the best i can't see him and not think about two-face personally but olympus has fallen it's pretty good london has fallen i also like it more than the majority of people out there i know that a lot of folks think it's a big step backwards it takes that claustrophobic formula from olympus has fallen and does what i think is it die hard three does and kind of spans it out to across a whole city and so it works a lot less i think but this movie this movie (laughs) i went into this expecting just some fun action right and man oh man what I got, Patrick, was the perfect blend of silly and stupid. It was very sweet, actually, and surprisingly dramatic in moments, probably more so than any of the other two films. And it was a total crowd pleaser. I mean, this is the kind of movie you want to see with a lot of other people in your movie theater because people are cheering, people are laughing. People are ooing and aahing and doing all of that cool stuff. And it really was a great example of one of those movies. We talk about this in the Facebook group sometimes where the story doesn't really matter that much. Okay, it's goofy. It is really kind of dumb. It it reminds me a lot of 80s and 90s action movies. Honestly, if you took the way those the tone of those films and you plop down modernized technology (laughs) in the middle of it. You would get Angel Has Fallen. It's totally telegraphed. It's totally formulaic. But I think that it does those things well. You really know the twists are coming if you're at all paying attention. But yet my entire audience erupted in a state of shock at this certain reveal. And I was just like, (laughs) I was laughing so hard because I was surprised that they all were shocked. And I don't know how they were shocked, but they were. 
they seem to enjoy it. Um, it is really focused on the mental slash physical aging health of uh, Mike Banning, the main character. So like I said, it's a little more dramatic. He's got to deal with some issues about his family being in danger, which of course is going to ratchet up, you know, the tension for him and therefore for us. It's got a role being played by Nick Nolte that was probably one of the most hilarious surprises I have seen in a movie all year. I did not know Nick Nolte was in this movie. I did not know Nick Nolte was even still acting. Patrick, he is like, <laughs> I don't want to even say anything about him. He, his character, he plays, um, you know, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to say who he plays, but he is just so much fun. Okay. He steals every scene he's in. He is completely wackadoodle and off the reservation as far as the crazy way in which his character comes across, but yet he's so endearing. Uh, there was a lot of heart in this movie that I didn't expect, and ultimately, there's plenty of action, right? It's a little bit more spaced out, I think, than some of the other films. The first half or so feels almost like The Fugitive where Banning is on the run and trying to prove himself innocent and it's working and not working to different effect. Some people believe him, some people don't. Uh, but then eventually in the third act, it just kicks into full-on series gear, I guess, and it is bloody, it is loud, it is explosive, and boy, it delivers, in my opinion. I think it is a great capper for this trilogy, if it indeed is the end of it, and I think that it is the best movie in the series, and I would gladly go watch it again i was high on it coming out of it and i've stayed high on it thinking about it in hindsight so i highly That's recommend great. it yeah well would you say that people who go see this need to see the first two is it mandatory oh watching yeah, yeah. i mean yeah okay characters no i guess no there's not an overarching storyline with anybody except just mike banning and what has happened to him. So if you read the synopses and you were like, oh, he saved the president of America. Oh, he saved the president in London. And now this person is this role and that's all you need to know. And you could actually probably go into it and enjoy it. But you are definitely going to have more of a connection to him and what he's gone through leading up to this point. You're going to empathize with him a lot more if you've experienced those first two movies. Very cool. Yeah, it's worth uh, it sounds like it's worth seeing and a good popcorn movie. For sure. I, I would recommend anybody halfway interested to go check this one out in the theater. Fantastic. Well, your movie that you want to talk about is not coming out in the theater. No, like, it's not. Not now and probably not ever. Um, it's actually two movies. It is. In fact. It's so what was it you caught up with this past week? I was looking through my Netflix queue and every once in a while I get into a position where I want to clean out the closet a little bit, you know, clear the decks of like stuff I need to watch. And in my queue was this documentary that I thought was kind of interesting. It, at least, you know, it's, it was titled Fire, the greatest party that never happened. And I was like, what in the world is this? Apparently, Aaron, I missed the boat on this whole event because I watched this documentary and I had no idea that this had taken place. So if you're not familiar with this, me, Fire. I'm not familiar with this. Okay. I literally had never heard of it until the documentaries came out, and I still barely understand what it, all the rage was. All right. So Fire Festival was a 2017 attempted festival by an entrepreneur named Billy McFarland, 
who had made a name for himself with a company called Magnesis, the credit card for millennials. And he partnered up with Ja Rule, a famous rapper, if you don't know who that is, to put on this festival that was like this high-end luxury event. And he was promising this deserted island with a million-dollar treasure hunt and that you could win a piece of the island if you if you won this treasure hunt. He was promoting all of these big acts like Blink-182 and these this tells you how far out of the loop I am when it comes to like relevance. I didn't know half of the groups that were named in this lineup. But you do know who Blink-182 is. Yes, they were headlining, okay. and so I feel... Oh, yes. <laughs> I know Blink-182, and I know their offshoot, Angels and Airways, which I actually prefer a little bit better. I actually prefer them, too. But They're so good. Okay, I digress. In any case, so he, he attempts to put on this festival... And he makes it out to be this grand thing. And the whole time that he's putting it together, it's becoming a disaster. So the island that he was supposed to have ended up kicking him off for various reasons. You'll find out in the doc. And he has to move it over to Great Exuma, which is a more populated island with, as one of the, one of the folks that was working on the project says, has, you know, plumbing and, um, ends up going to a, remote location that's actually a real estate development that has basically been abandoned. And so this whole time that he's developing, the folks that are investing in this, the investors, the folks that are wanting to attend and paying like upwards of like $25,000 and $50,000 for all these like villa packages and all this posh experience have no idea what's actually happening. And so the day of the festival um, the first group of people get there and they find out that they're not getting villas. They're not getting these amazing accommodations. They're living in FEMA tents and they're getting not, sh- uh, you know, upper crust chef meal service. They're getting cheese sandwiches. And it's just bonkers how this festival was advertised and what it ended up being for these fans. So fire on Netflix explores the origin of the festival all the way up until after Billy eventually gets arrested for fraud and for all these different things. But I would also recommend the Hulu documentary, which I think released about either four days or four weeks before the Netflix one as a, as a way obviously to compete. And it's gotten a lot of great press and, and rightly so it, it explores it uses the the festival as a as a means to tell the story, but it really centers on Billy as a as a person, how he got his start, how he was able to convince all these people to invest in this event, how he was able to hide these things. And it really focuses on him as a fraudster and how the tendencies that implemented that, that were part of the fire festival really were not out of the question for a guy like him because he was doing the same thing in some of his previous ventures. So I would actually recommend you watch both. I actually prefer the Netflix documentary. I've watched it probably two or three times. I've enjoyed it that much, but both of them do a lot to explore not only Billy and everything that he did, but also the power of social media, the power of, of social, infl- of is it social influencers. I don't know if that's the right word of influencers. And, um, and just how buzz can 
craft a message that could be a complete deception. And of course, being that it's geared towards what they call rich millennials, I was not, I was definitely not part of that crew. I wasn't the target audience. So that may be why guys like you and me didn't really even know about it. But apparently it became like an internet meme. It was talked about on, on like late night, you know, Jimmy Fallon was making jokes about it. And there were so many different pockets of, of the entertainment industry that, that called attention to it and made fun of it, that it just became apparently huge, but obviously not huge enough. So ironically, the festival that was sparked by a big social media buzz apparently didn't touch us when it came to <laughs> all that stuff. But it's a really, it's entertaining for sure. The Netflix one more so, I think, than the, uh, than the Hulu one. The Hulu one feels more like a crime drama because it, again, centers around him. But I highly recommend if you can watch both, and you can do it in any order, just know that they come from completely different places in terms of their approach, but they're incredibly complementary of each other. And so they kind of capture a full gamut of not only Billy, but the festival and his relationship to all that. I'm intrigued. I, when this went down, I just didn't understand. All of a sudden, these both landed within a couple of days of each other, like you said, and everybody online was watching both of them and just freaking out about this festival. And so I heard the buzz and saw the online chatter, but I never got around to sitting down and watching them. Maybe I'll try and make time for them before the end of the year. Did you know that Netflix is actually putting out a new series? It's called yes. the Welcome I- to the Island. I-land. I-land. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the article headlines for this. There's things that say Netflix putting out uh, Fire Festival meets Lost. Netflix puts a horrific spin. It's like the Fire Festival with murder. There, there's all these great little taglines. The Fire Festival uh, meets a deadly twist. I mean, it's just really intriguing. So what- I would say, I would say, required watching for you would be to watch the Netflix doc and then watch Welcome to the Island. I, I'm now intrigued. If I had had I not watched this documentary, these documentaries, I would not have any interest in Welcome to the Island. Aaron, I mean, if they're not being obvious, it should become, it should be well seen that the font used for Welcome to the Island is almost the exact same, if not the exact same font that was used at the beginning of the promo video that Billy put together to introduce the fire festival. Ah, uh, so, nice. And it was up against a water backdrop and all this stuff. So it, yeah, I mean, it's like, here's, I'm thinking, here's what would happen if you brought a bunch of people to an island, promising them a big music festival and trap them there, which is essentially kind of what happened for two days. (laughs) But then you made it intentional. And I thought, okay, that's going to be a fun premise. And the fact that it's a series really interests me because I'm wondering how that's going to play out. Yeah, you get more time with the characters, especially in that kind of a scenario where you're going to be losing characters. I'm sure they're going to get murdered. And this way you get to know them a little better before you lose them, which is more impactful. So yeah, maybe I'll try and check them out and then also check out the series. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll see. Well, the third thing we want to talk about is another movie that is actually in theaters right now, although this is one of those indie movies that probably isn't actually in a theater near you. I'm very grateful for screeners for that particular reason. 
makes me frustrated that I live in a landlocked state that isn't privy to um, hurricanes and craziness like that. But at the same time, it's not privy to really great early screenings or even like actual screenings of movies that come out. Yeah. So the movie we're talking about is called The Peanut Butter Falcon. And the name alone certainly doesn't spark a lot of intrigue, in my opinion. I mean, it's weird, but it doesn't really say much about what the movie's going to be focusing on. I mean, it makes sense once you see it, of course, but not at first glance. This is definitely rolling out across the country slowly, like a lot of indie films do these days, going up against all of these screens taken up by blockbusters. This is what happens. They play in a couple markets, and if they can make enough money, then they slowly start to roll out in other markets, and if they really do well, then they may get close to you, or to the closest big city near you if you're in the Midwest, uh, the States, somewhere. But the movie is about a guy named Zach. This is uh, an adult man with Down syndrome who runs away from his care home to make his dream of becoming a wrestler come true. And... Along the way, he runs into a character named Tyler, who is down on his luck. This is a very country town. I don't know if it started in North Carolina, but it definitely starts in the southern half of the East Coast. Um, they're on an adventure throughout to get to North Carolina. So it's somewhere around there where it starts. And the characters are all very country. Tyler has a boat out on a swamp, and he's fishing and crabbing and making enemies doing those things. He's lost his brother, so he's got some emotional stuff he's dealing with. And once Zach is able to escape and meet up with Tyler, it becomes this road trip of sorts between these two guys who you would have never in a million years put together. And I don't know if I said it yet, but Shia LaBeouf uh, plays Tyler. And I think Patrick... In a way, and I'm pretty sure he's said this in interviews, this is a therapeutic film for him. It is cathartic for him. It, he has actually used the word transformational. Not only is his acting amazing, as he is this very hardened kind of man who shows a side of himself that maybe you don't expect to be there at first when he runs into Zach and as he becomes friends with Zach, but I really saw this movie as a like mirror of his career in so many ways, almost like he was saying, like, listen, I know this is the guy that I've been. I've been this Tyler who's made poor choices, and I'm still dealing with the consequences of those poor choices, but this is who I want to be, and this is who I'm working to be. And, I mean, I found this movie to be incredibly moving. The fact that uh, Zach is an actor who actually has Down syndrome is amazing. It is a wonderful performance. He does an incredible job. And so it's a very personal film for both Shia and Zach. And boy, does it shine through, man. I was a bawling wreck watching this movie with my dad and my two kids. My kids kept looking at me and my daughter was like, you okay, dad? You okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I, I was so moved and touched by this movie. I just, I loved it. It blew me away. It was that emotional gut punch of a film I've literally been waiting for all year. I haven't had one quite this strong hit me. And, and I loved this movie. Yeah, I felt very salt of the earth with it as I was watching it and just kind of down home, really just 
close to your heart, kind of a small tale. I like the fact that it wasn't a big production. It didn't feel big. It felt just like a, it was a road movie. That's what it was, a road movie with two people that were very much trying to live their own lives but needed each other to to find something better. And I think that you're right in a sense. It's not, I wouldn't call it autobiographical, but I would agree with him in that it is therapeutic, the fact that he's not doing anything that is outrageous. And he's not, I wouldn't think that with a production like this, he is, he's trying to make a ton of money because this isn't going to make a ton of money. It's a very quiet film. It's a very, it's moving. It's very touching. And that's what it's meant to be. His, um, the writing in it is stellar. There are conversations that his character Tyler has with Eleanor, particularly the first time they meet that I think is just incredibly witty and, um, there's there's some moments of like flirtatious tenderness and some ego behind him and how she responds to him. There's a it just it's a kind of battle between the two, kind of a, a, a word battle where they are kind of sizing each other up. And you know that their relationship is going to continue throughout the movie in some way or another. But it's fun to see how it gets introduced in the same way with with him and Zach watching how they challenge each other, watching how they supply those little things that the other person needs without that other person really realizing it. And I think that this is a movie that Shia needs. I think that in a lot of ways, I'm not going to compare him to Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, but he needed something that wasn't obnoxious. He needed something that wasn't going to... Wasn't edgy. Wasn't pushing the limits of, you know, content restrictions and such. Right. He wasn't trying. It's almost as if when you talk about M. Night Shyamalan and The Visit, The Visit was getting back to his roots as a director. And I think that if Shia LaBeouf had roots as an actor, maybe this is it. This is just simple, uh, great dialogue, but nothing necessarily like, wow, Oscar moment. But definitely something that pulls your heart and says, man, I care about these guys deeply. And uh, yeah, I walked away smiling. Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned there's no wow Oscar moment, and I probably would agree. But this is, I mean, it might be my favorite film of the year. It's right there with Apollo 11 for me, as far as I mean, just that knockout experience of like, I wasn't expecting it, and I couldn't control myself. You know, I couldn't handle the emotions as they were coming and that feeling is so rare these days and especially when we watch so many movies as critics it's a special special thing it's just incredibly emotionally powerful uh, the performances throughout eleanor as you mentioned is played by dakota johnson which i think she does a really great job this is a different type of role for her i loved it the score and the soundtrack are amazing soundtrack fits perfectly all of the songs right down to the lyrics especially in the end credits song that one um, grabbed my attention quite a bit i wanted to point out something that zach uh, gotzigan said he said down syndrome won't stop me i knew that i could do it it was hard sometimes but i knew if i worked hard i would do a good job and i did i'm really proud of myself and there's a quote from a uh, chuck yarbrough in the cleveland plain dealer he says gotzigan is the ultimate method actor he doesn't 
quote, inhabit the role, because for him, it's not a role. He literally is the man determined to overcome an obstacle, and he's amazingly honest and wonderful in doing it. I thought that that quote was perfect, because that is how I felt watching it. You're watching an actor, but it's actually himself in the role. I mean, he's, you know what I mean? And uh, it, there's just something extra special, I think, about that connection. The other thing, I've read some negative reviews of this, some less than stellar reviews of this, and it actually made my blood boil. I feel like this is a movie that contends with the cynicism in the world. And I find it incredibly cynical to not feel something when watching this. And I think that with the cynicism that we see in our movies frequently, it's because art often reflects our attitude currently. And I just thought, man, it is so nice to see something offer genuine hope and portray goodness and kindness straight up over and over. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I'm going to be saying it ain't snack time. It's Jack time (laughs) for a long time. Are you going to start like putting peanut butter on your face and that kind of thing? Uh, no, no, I don't think I'm going to quite go that far. Okay. Uh, if I have a wrestler name, might be something else. But okay. <laughs> Yeah, so we highly, highly recommend Peanut Butter Falcon, folks. If you have a chance to go see this in the theater, definitely go do that. Support your art house theater, your indie theater, wherever this is playing. Maybe it's at, I think, Regals here in Seattle are showing it. So go see the movie, because if you don't go see this movie in a theater, then... They're not going to keep putting movies like this in theaters, and it's going to just be in fewer and fewer until they just stop making them. And we don't want to see that. Our last movie review, did I have that right, Patrick? I know I was having a problem counting earlier this yes. evening. Yes. Well, our last review is for a film that is coming out on VOD, I want to say in October-ish, I think. It's already played a film festival. It's not out in theaters that I could find right now. But we wanted to put this on your radar because it was brought to our attention recently. And frankly, when I found out that there was this documentary out there about people who rescue cats in New York City, it was like, gimme, 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 gimme. So the plot synopsis for this documentary called The Cat Rescuers is that with over 500,000 street cats, (laughs) let that sink in. (laughs) That is half of a million street cats, feral street cats. Struggling to survive in New York City and the city unwilling to address the problem, spirited volunteers like Sassy, Claire, Stu, and Tara have come to their aid. Their beat is Brooklyn, where the problem has exploded. Combing the borough's alleys, backyards, and housing projects, they trap the cats, get them fixed, and either return them to their colonies or get them adopted. Patrick, Patrick, Patrick. This movie was very interesting for me. It's very informative. Learning about the incredibly dire situation and shockingly high number of cats. At one point they said, I believe that there are as many cats on the streets of New York City as there are in homes and apartments currently, which is just staggering. It's mind-blowing. I loved seeing cats get rescued and find homes, but this documentary doesn't sugarcoat it. 
And the reason that these people are out there is because they have hearts, unlike most of us, honestly, and they don't want to see these cats get picked up and put down. And that's the reality of what does happen. Or they die on the streets from starvation or from fighting each other or from the elements. It was hard to get through for me, and that was not something I was expecting, Patrick. I got sad watching this one. Yeah, I, I got that way too. And it's no jo- it's it's no secret that I'm a dog lover, but I'm also a cat lover. I have I have one that you've met, you and the kids have met, and we've had him since we've been married, so eleven years in October. And uh that no, we've had him, not since we've been married, that's August. But um you know, looking looking at this documentary, watching it, and having that same kind of reaction of the fact that what these guys are doing, I would think in some ways, when you think about getting some a dog fixed or a cat fixed or neutered, um, it feels kind of degrading because it's like, well, you're just ruining their chances to give birth. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Because as they say early in the documentary, and just think, if this one kitten has kittens and that kitten has kittens, I mean, they're not talking about, you know, dating here. I mean, they're they're talking about, you know, Every cat's on the table. You know, every cat is eligible to be impregnated. That That's what happens. It just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And there are two options. One is to take these this route and rescue the cats and get them fixed, get them spayed and neutered, or leave them up to a city where they get put down. Put down not because they are possibly being pregnant or just that, but also because People don't want them anymore. And that hurt me. And look, I get that animals are no more, not as important as people, but we're in a first world country. And to me, yes, if it comes down to my son or my dogs, I'm giving up my dogs. But I love my dogs. I love my cat. I love my pets because they provide companionship. They provide a different kind of personality that is different from a human. And when you think about a pet that you've had and you realize, you know what? I don't want to give that pet any more of my attention. So I'm going to give it up. And the only option becomes that they get put down. That breaks my heart, man, because you're choosing not to love something anymore. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And I'm grateful that there is a group out there that is doing this, but obviously it's a, it's a problem that will not get solved in a year or two years or three years. And I hope that for people who are animal lovers that can put a piece of this kind of awareness in their heart, that they can see this movie, they can host a screening or, or, or do something where they can actually be a part of helping this movement in some way, shape or form. Right. Sassy, one of the the main ladies that's being followed here, who pays for the vet bills by herself, on her own, out of her own money. She gets a discount, she says, but she's still paying for them. She says she spends $500 a month on food and litter, just for cats that are in and out of her home, because she can't keep them all, right? Another one of the ladies actually says, she says, you can't save the next one if you keep keeping them. And I was like, gosh, that would be the hard part for me, like I'd want to keep them all. But Sassy says early on, I saw all these cats. You got to do something about it. Don't talk about it. Be about it. And I love that. I thought that was a phenomenal quote and point that she's saying, 
we can all look at this and be like, man, that sucks. <laughs> but the only way it is fixed, to use an interesting pun in a way, is that we have to, you know, help get others to fix their cats. And we have to petition the government, which we see them doing to pretty much no avail and not able to get the help they need. And they say it, you know, like without the resources of a government or a city helping to give people the option to get free spay and neuter and promote it in a way that people will know it's there, then you're going to get this. You're going to get irresponsible people who treat pets as if they were a product that they could just discard when they no longer want. And this is the result of that. So it was a lot harder to watch than I thought it would be. I will say this when I was, as I was watching it, I started thinking about our culture as Westerners and getting a chance to go overseas a couple of times. It part of what we do with some of the locals there is we show pictures from our phones, like our families and things like that. And they always laugh and get, or at least get tickled to the fact that I have pictures of my pets. Got yeah, pictures of my, and they're like, why do you keep pets? Why do you keep animals in your house? What's, what's the deal there? And I have to explain to them that in our culture, it's part of who we are as Americans to be pet owners because of the fact that we see value in them beyond just another species that exists. But the fact is, that's also the case too. I mean, and, this documentary obviously exposes that, that not all these cats were necessarily pets of an owner, that they were probably great, 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 great grandkids of a cat that may have been someone's pet and they're just been living, they've just been living on the streets. So the truth is everywhere in the fact that there is a population overgrowth of, of animals in pockets of the United States, but it's also in other parts of the world. Um, it's just interesting to see how this group of people see the, see the pets, see these animals as a means to rescue and not as a problem, but as a way to find a solution. And I think there's some hope in that too. Oh, definitely. And like you said, other countries like Turkey, this is very reminiscent of a film documentary film from a few years ago called Keddy, which we both also love and highly recommend. I think overall, I th- I think that the film here, The Cat Rescuers, does actually spend maybe a little bit too much time, though, on the humans. We do see a lot of their lives and the things that they're dealing with and their personal lives. And, of course, it's ultimately all kind of tied back to the fact that they're going through these real things and this is where they work and what they do. And now they're sacrificing themselves to give to the cats. But as a documentary, I felt like it almost could have been half the length it could have been like a 45 minute documentary that really just focused in on the rescuing of the cats and the issue at hand and it would have worked just fine for me i did really like seeing these people all have like kind of slightly different methods of how they trap a cat that was one of the hardest things for me honestly was when the cat is captured for the first moment and you see them like throttling themselves at full speed up against a fence I've literally watched an ostrich kill themselves this way in my life. I was out at a friend's house whose dad was a pilot, had a lot of money, and had a farm, and had ostriches. And they would come up and attack the fence if you got too close of them, two of them. And we were told not to get too close. And, of course, we 
didn't listen because we were kids. And we got too close. And this ostrich ran full speed at us and just smacked his face into the fence and killed himself. And that's what I kept seeing happen. These cats just bam, bam, bam. And it was heartbreaking because they were so scared. And I was like grasping my own cat tightly next to me like, oh, I want to save you all. But so I thought it could have been a little shorter. Uh, but overall, like I said, really impactful. And they give a stat at the end of this film says in the U.S. alone. Alone, one country, our country, there are an estimated 40 million feral cats, and only 2% are spayed and neutered. <laughs> so, guess who's going to inherit the planet, folks? Uh, it's not going to be us. They are partnering with an organization called TUG uh, to allow rescue shelters and other groups to bring the cat rescuers into communities. Like Patrick said, you can host a screening. So if you're listening and you would like to host a screening or look into that for your community, uh, you can find out more on their website at catrescuersfilm.com slash host dash a dash screening. Check that out if you're interested. And like I said, uh, it comes out on VOD and DVD on October 15th, 2019. So make sure you put it on your calendars and definitely give this one a watch. Fantastic. Well, it's 2019. And 20 years ago, we celebrated what was arguably the best movie year ever. Well, at least one guy thought that. That's my segue to talk about the book that I just finished that I have mentioned on the show a handful of times, maybe more than I need to, but I'm going to keep plugging it because it's a great book. Wow, that was ominous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. That's okay. crazy. Are you Okay. We got storms. We're good. Okay. <laughs> hey, did Twister come out in 1999? Because that'd be kind of funny. I don't think it did. I think it was. Uh, hope, you're getting, hope you're not getting a Twister or oh, Armageddon or. Cow. <laughs> cow. Patrick's like podcasting and looks out the window. Cow. Okay. I digress. <laughs> so it's a book called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. It came out earlier this year and it was written by a guy named Brian Raftery. I got it, I think, as a birthday present or a Christmas present. I can't remember specifically, but I started reading it earlier this year. I finally got around to finishing it. It's been a, a slow burn intentionally because it's got a lot of really great stuff in it, and I wanted to take my time. And essentially what he does is he breaks down about 15 different movies that he considers pretty much game changers, not only for the year that they came out in 1999, but also that represent the world that they were coming into. Movies like The Matrix, Fight Club, American Beauty. These movies that kind of transformed how we enjoy film beyond just the summer blockbuster. But he also included things like Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, which gets such a bad rap, but he argues that it kind of reinvigorated what the summer blockbuster was because we hadn't had a Star Wars movie in well over, what, 15 years, 16 years? And there was a lot of hype for that. I remember clearly seeing it in the theater at least six times. And Midnight showing right here with a lightsaber. So he goes through these, these movies and he talks about, he gives kind of like a mini bio for each one of them. So if you're interested and you're familiar with any of these movies, Election, The Blair Witch Project, Following, you know, Chris Nolan, his first ever short film he goes through these and he just gives a little each one kind of becomes its own story as part of these chapters 
And what you come to find out is more about the movie's production, about the writers behind it. You know, Tom Cruise was as big a star as he had been in 1999. And to see him in something like American Beauty was something of an odd duck because of the fact that, you know, this is Stanley Kubrick's last movie and he's playing an interesting character. But then he comes around later in the year and he's in Magnolia. So that being something that, that he brings about. And Raftery essentially is telling this tale of 1999 and he ends the book not by saying, yes, this is why it was the best movie year ever, but he, he essentially says 1999 was special because it did something different that hadn't been done in previous years. It told stories from big studios that took risks and it allowed storytellers to tell their stories. We weren't inundated with sequels and already established properties as we are now. We weren't living in the superhero universe as we are now. And 1999 ushered in what was a a new wave of independent movies, of risk-taking studios, and the ability for actors and writers and directors to try new things. And in his epilogue, he sees that shifting back to where it was, maybe in the early 80s. And he sees it as possibly being a product of the people that go to movies now, this new generation of millennials that maybe really aren't as interested in movies as, as much as they are television. And in his epilogue, I think this sums up a lot of what he is articulating in his book. He says, with film studios and filmgoers more interested in superheroes and Star Wars, television has become a place for deeply imaginative, often completely unrestricted ideas, the kind that used to be found mostly at the movies. And there's a quote, um, I think, by by one of the writers that says, if The Matrix and being John Malkovich, he had another movie in 1999, were being pitched today, they'd be pitched as television shows. Now, I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I get the sentiment behind it and the fact that those were risky stories. Office space that's become a cult classic probably wouldn't have been able to get made. Election wouldn't have gotten gotten made. And there were tons of others that came out that he, he mentions but doesn't go into a lot of detail about. And if anything, it gets me wanting to rewatch the ones that he mentions that I've seen and actually check out some that I haven't seen. But for anybody that loves movies, which, I mean, who doesn't necessarily, but anybody who loves the history of, of films and, and wanting to see these biographies of these different movies, this is a great book to check out. Even if you don't agree with the premise, it's still a really entertaining read and worth your time. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that it's not a book that is trying to make the case that it necessarily is the best movie year ever, because it's kind of a, a hyperbolic intentionally title is what you're saying, you know, that it's more about why the year was such an important year and not best movie year ever in the sense that this year had the literal top, you know, 100 movies ever made or whatever the case may be, if you were to rate them all. That's not the point. The point is talking about diversity and variety and newness and uniqueness and all of those factors going into things. So I'm definitely interested and certainly want to give this one a read. There are a couple of my all-time favorites that came out in 1999. It's a year that has quite a few movies that I'm in love with. 
So I will give it a read eventually. Actually, I think you said you were going to send it to me when you finished. Did I? Okay, I will do that. I'm pretty sure you did. Okay, I'll send it over your way. It's on the podcast now, so... You can't, can't you pick it back. Can't put you back. on the spot. So yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> no edits here, right? Nope. <laughs> well, that's all from us on this episode of FF+. Plus. Uh, stay tuned in the next few days as we bring you our conversation on the week four Director Battle Month <laughs> winner, uh, Seven, followed by our donor pick for August, The Wizard of Oz. And it will also be time for some bonus content for our patrons. And if you want to be a part of that and aren't, uh, you can check out patreon.com slash film for more details. Aaron, thank you so much for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.